All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Welcome to the Branch Church. I know this is a lot of your first times. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders and the teaching pastor here. Um, and simultaneously, we also have a church plant in Milledgeville that will be launching their service in about 30 minutes. So we can be in prayer for those guys. Um, but here's what I want to do to get started before we jump into the sermon. Uh, because I know that a lot of you guys have just had your first week of college. Now, raise your hand if you just had your first week of college. <clears throat> we are, we, I mean, literally, I'm not exaggerating, uh, and I'm pretty sarcastic, but this is not a sarcastic moment. We are so glad you're here. Uh, the reason that we planted in Alonega, the reason that we planted in Milledgeville, that the vision God has given us to plant in college communities in the Southeast is because of you guys. Um, and I know, I mean, this is an awkward week. This is probably a really weird week. I hated my first week of college. Anyone else? I, I, I wore a cowboy hat to my first day of class. How stupid. <laughs> Is that? Yeah, you can laugh at that. That's the dumbest idea. Um, my oldest brother's like, hey, man, you need to set yourself apart. You do something cool. I'm like, I'm going to wear a cowboy hat. It's so dumb. Uh, but I did. And then my teacher said, hey, the guys can't see behind you. Will you take that off? And that was the last time I went back after my 8 o'clock class and took it off and never wore it again. Uh, I met this girl at the, uh, just a Baptist ministry on campus, and I was like, hey, I don't have any friends. You don't have any friends. Like, let's go grab some lunch and just get to know each other. Strictly platonic, wasn't trying to, but when you look this good, I guess I make girls nervous. And so she brought her friend with her, which is like, man, this is just weird. Like, let's not be friends anymore. Uh, it was just not a good week. I was in drumline, which, wow. <laughs> That was not the joke of that, but okay. Uh, <laughs> didn't like anybody I was in drumline with. It's just, so my first week, it, it just stunk. So if your first week stunk, we're glad you're here. Seriously, we love you. We're here for you. Um, we planted here for you. You've come to the right place. Uh, here, here'd be my encouragement for you as we get started this morning. Um, after this, we're going to go grab some lunch, go to Captain D's or Zaxby's or something. Um, Yes, you can moan it. Captain D's is gross. Um, meet us down at Yahula Creek. Do y'all know where that's at? Yahula Creek's like literally just keep driving right behind this place. A beautiful park. We're just going to hang out, um, get to know us there. Next weekend, we have a couple different things planned. Um, I know that when I was in my freshman year, I just wanted to get to Labor Day weekend so I could go back home. Um, here's my plea. Don't go home. Hang out with us. We're going to be doing things. We're going to have a pool party. Uh, we're going to go out to the lakes. Some of our church members have a lake house. We're going to go to the lake. We're going to go hike. Just stay here. Get to know community because it's going to make this process a lot more seamless for you. So, the last thing, and we'll highlight this again in a minute, um, at the back there's missional community sign up. So at the end of the gathering, you're going to be able to sign up for a community. We have one on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. Just encourage you, I mean, just get plugged in here. I know that this week can be awkward and just weird, but the quicker you get into community, the quicker you realize we, hear, we are here for you. We love you guys. We want you to be part of the family. I think it'll be easier for you. So um, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, and then we're going to go to John 14 after that. So here's kind of what we're doing, the process of what we're doing, uh, because most of you guys have probably never been in a church inside of a gym. Anyone? I mean, we are literally in a gym. There's a basketball goal right there. Do you guys know what pickleball is? 
Okay, so there's going to be some old people playing pickleball here in a little bit. Like this room is nothing fancy. There's no holiness happening here. There's just, it's just a gym. And so um, what we want to do is try to dissect in what is the church. Because I heard a really dumb joke this week, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's really dumb. Uh, I was at a discipleship training with a guy named Hottie Lewis at Blueprint. Anyone ever heard of Blueprint Church in Atlanta? Anyone ever heard of 116 or Lecrae? Okay, so these guys go to, or went to at some point, Blueprint Church. If it feels like I'm name dropping right now, I am, because it was the coolest thing I've done in a while. Um, so he told this story about this ham, this Thanksgiving ham, where um, the daughter walks up to the older sister that was preparing this ham, and she cuts off both ends and puts it in the pan. And so the little sister said, hey, why did you cut off both ends of the ham? put it in the pan. And she said, I, I don't know. Go ask your mom. I learned it from your mom. So the little girl goes to her mom and says, hey, mom, um, my sister just cut both ends off the ham and put it in the pan. Why did she do that? And the mom goes, I have no idea. Go ask your grandma. I learned it from her. So went to the grandma and said, hey, grandma, my sister and my mom both cut both ends of the ham off, put it on the pan. Why do they do that? And she said, they're dumb. And the daughter's like, well, okay, you want to elaborate? She said, I had to do that way back in the day because my pan didn't fit the entire ham. So I had to put, cut off both ends of the ham and put it in. I don't know why they do that. Now, that is the dumbest pastoral joke you'll ever hear at the branch. But it serves a purpose, right? That if we don't question our motives, if we don't really look back and say, why do we do what we do? Uh, then we're probably going to be doing it wrong. And if we ask that question in most of the churches that we've grown up in, if we say, why is it that we do what we do, we're probably going to get a response more geared to tradition than the Bible. Well, this is just how we've done it. This is how the generation did it before. This is how the generation did it before. And so we just keep going backwards and saying, I don't know why the color of carpet this way. I don't know why we have Sunday school. I don't know why we do worship this way. It's how it's always been done. And so when we have the opportunity to say, no, we're going to plant a church from scratch, what would this look like? I didn't want to ask my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation. We wanted to go all the way back to Scripture and say, okay, what was the earliest instructions for the local church? What, what started all of this? So what we're doing here is not, we're not trying to be innovative. We've titled this series The Old Way because we're not trying to be cool or hip or I'm not growing a beard because I want to be that hipster guy. I just hate shaving. So we're trying to go all the way back and say, what is the original way? What is the old way that the church has actually started? And from that, how, how can we do this thing together? So Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to land. And we're just going to get three pillars out of Acts chapter 2 that's going to help our minds wrap around what church actually is. Acts chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. Verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So just a little bit of setting here. Where's scenery is taking place? Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He's now ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has fallen to the apostles and all that were left. And they gathered around the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So uh, I know that you guys are back in school and everyone loves a good whiteboard lesson. I love a good whiteboard, so here we go. This is called a Venn diagram. Anyone ever seen a Venn diagram? If you haven't seen a Venn diagram, I would encourage you to go to Instagram uh, and check out Dylan Richards' Venn diagram. Uh, it is beautiful. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. The whole point of a Venn diagram is this middle part, but the way that Dylan masterfully drew it, there's no middle part. Uh, you should go check it out. It's fantastic. Dylan, I love you. 
but it was fantastic. So um, the first thing that we see, the first big pillar is that they were gospel-centered, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, we've got to ask, what were the apostles' teaching? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come, that he has died, that he's been raised again. And what that means is we, ha- we can live life to the full. What that means is that salvation can be earned because of what Christ has done for us. That we don't have to earn it because of our good works, but if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. So we devoted themselves around the gospel. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. What does that sound like? Community. All who believed, all the believers had everything in common. They did everything together. The most fantastic community of all time. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. That's living on mission. They said, listen, my my life is not my own. If you have a need and if I have property, I will sell it. I will do whatever I can to help all those around us. Because Jesus said to take care of the widows and the orphans. Jesus said to love God first, to love your neighbors yourself. So what this really looks like is for me to live on mission, for me to consider myself less. Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. This is what it looks like then to live on mission. Verse 46, and when all three things are taking place, this is what happens. And day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, heart, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if we see all of these three taking place, then we're going to see day by day those who are being saved. We're going to see an entire community, an entire state change for the beauty of the gospel. This is what it means to be the church, but this is also what it means to be a disciple. So we can't separate. Here's what the church does, and here's what a disciple does, because disciples are the church. I wish I could spend 20 hours on this. I'm not going to. Don't worry. Um, but most of us have grown up with this idea that what? We, we go to church. Church is an activity that we participate in. But what we're trying to see through Scripture, through the old way, is church isn't something you do. Church is who you are. So there's never a command in all of Scripture to go plant or start churches, is there? But Jesus is very clear. We go, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. And if we make disciples, what is always formed? The church. So we see this idea that this is what the church was doing, but the church is doing it because that's who they are. This is how we define a disciple. Are you gospel-centered? Are you community, living in community? Are you living on mission? This is what it means then to be a disciple. So last week we spent a bunch of time, and, and all this is on podcasts if you want to learn more about it, we spent a bunch of time understanding what it means to be gospel-centered. Um, today we're going to talk about what it means to be community, because Acts 2.44 says that all who believed together and had all things in common. So what does it look like then for us, 150, 140, I don't know how many are here. What does it look like for us to actually live as community? Because what, what we're going to see through Scripture, I think, is we, we might have a perverse version of what true community looks like just because of the vanity of us as Americans. So um, flip over with me to John 14. John 14 is where we're going to land for the rest of the time. I'll allude to other Scriptures, but... John 14. I meant to say this earlier. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible, there should be some sitting around the floor somewhere around you. Please take it. That's our gift. We want you to have that Bible um, so you can study Scripture. I, I always want to, you to look at Scripture for yourself. I don't want you to think that we're trying to manipulate you or anything like that. We're just honestly trying to teach the Bible the best that we can. 
John 14 is, is where we're going to look at. I'm going to flip it back over. Smooth, right? That was perfect. That was perfect. All right, so if community is what we're after, don't look at my butt. How do we get there? If community is what we're after, how do we get there? John 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. I'm going to read 1 through 9, and then verse 10 and 11 is going to give us the big clues. So John 14, we'll pick it up in verse 1. This is Jesus right before his death. He's given his final instructions to his disciples. John 14, pick it up in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, also, where I am you also may be. Verse 4. And you know the way that I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? You can hear the angst in his voice. Have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. So we spent a lot of time talking last week as Jesus is laboring with these guys, with these disciples. Do you not know me, Philip? I've been with you now for three years. Do you not know me? To be gospel-centered starts with the idea of knowledge. Everything we do starts with knowledge. So the first thing that Jesus was doing is trying to give them knowledge, teach them that he is everything. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, is to know the fact that Jesus is everything. But he's about to change gears and go into, uh, give us a huge clue about what community is. Verse 10, do you not believe now, if you, I, don't, I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, but, but it's okay to mark in your Bibles. It's okay to circle and underline words. Um, this is a huge word for us this morning. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? This is verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on an account for the words that themselves. So, so here's what we're getting to. Jesus is kind of setting up a, a natural order for us. Any type A's in the room, you love orders and systems and details. Uh, any other not type A's that you just love freedom and I do what I want, when I want, how I want, stop it. Um, this is America, grow up. So just kidding. What I want us to see then, but Jesus has given us a very logical order. Knowledge comes first, but if we know Jesus, if we actually know, not know about him, but if we actually know him, the next step for us is to believe. But what does it really look like for us to believe? Because the word believe in the Greek um, simply means that we are putting our confidence in, that we're putting our confidence in. So knowing is knowing about kind of understanding the circumstances we know about Jesus. But for us to actually believe means we're putting full confidence in. But here's what I know. Most of us don't put full confidence in anything anymore. Most, we, we're not wired that way to put full confidence in any one thing. Uh, you don't believe me. Uh, where do you want to go out to eat? 
There's going to be so many conversations taking place in the next 30 minutes. Hey, where do you guys want to grab lunch before we go to picnic in the park? Because the pastor said go to picnic in the park, and if the pastor says that I've got to do it, go to picnic in the park. Go to picnic in the park. But where do we want to go eat? There's going to be so much communication taking place, but no one wants to put full confidence in we should go to Captain D's because they don't want to make the wrong decision. Here's what we know about our culture. Um, We are big self-protectors. We want to make sure that that we look after our own, and if we don't have to put our necks out on the line, we're not going to. We don't want to come across brash. We don't want to come across opinionated. So what is the most common phrase in America these days? I don't care. I don't care. Ladies, look at me. (laughs) I don't even have to say it. You care. It's okay to care. It's okay to share your opinion. Just tell us. Men, look at me. We're dumb. We need women to tell us. Don't say, I don't care. But this is what we always do. We, just, we don't want to put our necks out there. We don't want to actually put confidence in this one thing. And the other side of it, it's just not cool anymore. I mean, as we, as we move into the 21st century, as we're starting to have this big technology and, and all this move within our country, it's not cool to have these firm, confident beliefs anymore. Truth is, whatever you say it is, it's whatever you feel like. So, so we're getting it from all different angles that for us to truly put confidence in something, just don't do that. That's weird. But a lot of us, if we can go all the way back, not trying to get like all psychology, psychological on you, if we can go all the way back, there's probably one moment in our life where we were put full confidence in something and it went wrong. And from that point on, we said, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to put my neck out on the line. Now, I want you to know, uh, I've been working on this sermon for a while, and I, I thought and thought and prayed and considered so hard, when was the last time that I was fully confident in something and I was wrong? In church, I just have to admit, there wasn't a time. I've always been right. So this, this illustration, I'm just kidding. You're like, oh my gosh, is he, is he for real right now? No, um, there's been plenty of times where I've put full confidence in something just to find out that I'm wrong. And so we carry this naturally into our faith. Do we really want to put full confidence? We know Jesus, we know about Jesus, but do we actually want to put full confidence to say, I believe with everything that I am, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But Acts 2.44 says that all who believed together and had all things in common. So what does it mean for us to live a life of community? It's centered around belief. It's centered around this idea of full confidence that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Acts 2 models that for us. But here, here's the big question then, church. If, if, if community starts with this idea of belief, then, then what do we believe in? Is there a middle ground here that we have to understand? Uh, has anyone ever heard of the author Donald Miller? No? You guys can all leave the branch and never come back. Um, just kidding, don't do that, seriously, say. Um, Donald Miller wrote, has written a couple books. Um, Blue Like Jazz was one of the first ones. Y'all heard of this? Okay, no, that's the other title. Blue Like Jazz is a fantastic book. And here's what happened after he wrote Blue Like Jazz. Um, some guys pursued him and said, man, this book is fantastic. We want to make a movie about your life. Can we make a movie? So then he wrote a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And the main premise of this book is, if your life was a movie, would anyone pay to come see it? I mean, just think about it right now. If your life was a movie, if I came to you and said, we're going to make a movie about the next year of your life, 
And once that's over, we're going to put it on the big screen. We're going to rent out every AMC in the country. You can use MoviePass if it's not bankrupt. And you can come watch your life on film. Would anyone come to watch your story? Are you doing anything that anyone would care to come sit for an hour and a half and watch your life unfold on the film? So as I'm reading this book, so because of this challenge, Donna Miller said, I've got to do something. Uh, I'm going to bike all the way across the country. So he gets a road, or mountain, a road bike and bikes all the way across the country. Is your story something that someone would want to tell? I mean, you think about this. Most of you guys don't have kids that you know of. And would you want to pass on? So, it's just real. Can we not have real talk? Would you want to pass on the legacy of what you're doing right now in college to your kids? Or when your kids say, what did you do when you were 18? Like, you know, I just went to class. Cool, Dad. Yeah. Great story. Can we, can we make that a movie? So as I'm, I'm reading this, this is about 2012, uh, and it's, it's destroying me. Every part of this is going, man, I'm, I am 20, I don't know how old I was in 2012, 22, 24, something around there. I have a wife, I have a daughter, but, but is my life doing anything for the gospel? Am I actually accomplishing anything? If my life was a movie, would anyone pay to come see it? And then I heard this quote from a guy named Jim Cimbala, um, that He said, I despair, I despair, I loathe the fact that I might die without God moving greatly on my behalf. I loathe the fact, I despair, that I could go to my grave and God do nothing. That I see no move of God, I see no miracles take place, I see nothing happen in front of me. So I'm reading this book about does my story really matter and I'm read this quote from Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It's like, man, I've got to see God do something. My story has to count. It was about that same time my grandpa passed away and I got to preach my first funeral. And I'm telling you, I, church, I could have stood up, this is my first funeral I've ever preached, I could have stood up and said, if my grandpa made an impact in your life, would you stand up? Everyone in the room would have stood up and I could have walked off stage. Because this is what it means for our life to matter that you and I all have a story. There's something that God is doing within you, he's doing within me, and if we don't share our story, if we don't realize that, then we're gonna go and we're gonna die and our life is gonna count for nothing. So what is it then that, that we're asked to believe? What, what do you believe that God has put you here for a purpose? Do you believe that your story actually counts for something? Or are you just hoping that you get through this week, through this semester, through your sophomore year, through graduation? You're just hoping that you exist till you get a job, that you get a career, that you maybe get married, that you have kids. You're just hoping you exist till when they get into college. You're just hoping that you make it until you get to retire, and then you hope you make it till you die and you realize you've done nothing. That your life has counted for nothing. But we all feel this tension in us, right? We all want to leave a legacy. We all want our story to count for something. We have this thing at the branch called DNA groups you'll hear more about in the future. But what they are, they're just three guys or three girls that get together and study scripture every single week. And we do it by uh, gender so that we can actually talk real talk about things that we're going through and things we're experiencing. But one of the things that we do as we're studying scripture, we just ask four questions. We can read any passage. We say, in this passage, who is God and what has he done? Any, any passage, who is God and what has he done? So if if we're doing this with John 14, man, God is Jesus. Jesus is God. And what has he done? He's going to make a way for our sin. When there was no way, he will make a way. Well, if that's true of God, then the third question we ask is, who am I? 
So based on the knowledge of who God is, who does that make me? And the last question we ask is then what do we do? Based on this idea of what then do we do? So when we start understanding and trying to wrap our minds around that our story actually counts, this is where it's formed. Based on who God is and what he's done, what then do you do? So one of the best illustrations I can dream up of this happens in Luke 24. So I lied. If you want to flip to Luke 24, you can. This is, this is just the, the culmination of all of this taking place before our eyes. That if we actually believe that your story matters, amen, you live in community. If you believe that your story matters, you live in community. And this is, this is what I mean. I know that sentence sounds strange, but here's what I mean. In Luke 24, we pick up this incredible story where these two guys are walking down the seven-mile road to Emmaus. And their heads are low. They're sad because they've just seen Jesus crucified. They've put all this hope in this guy Jesus, and now he's dead, and they don't know what to do anymore. So they knew about Jesus, but they didn't actually know Jesus, or they would have known what was prophesied. So um, Jesus just comes walking up next to him and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? It was just cracks me up that two guys, Jesus, Jesus is raised, and they're going, man, are you the only person in town that doesn't know what's happened? Are you the only one that doesn't see why we're sad that this Jesus guy that we've been following for the last three years is dead, and we don't know what to do with ourselves? Jesus goes, oh, really? Well, yeah, you fool. Like, how do you not see this? Have you guys been so down in your own despair that you don't see the truth around you? It's happening for these guys. And Jesus goes, well, but don't you remember what the prophet said? And starting with the prophets, he works all the way through the Old Testament, trying to show these guys, listen, you know this. You know the truth. You've just forgotten it. You know that Jesus said, or the prophet said Jesus was going to die. You know what Isaiah says, and, and here I am. So they're walking down to Jesus is reminding him, hey, no, listen, Jesus isn't dead because I'm Jesus, but wasn't coming out right and saying it. In Luke 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 28 because this is where we start to see and understand what this means. Luke 24, verse 28. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He being Jesus active, he was going further, verse 29, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. Verse 30. When he was at the table, excuse me, yeah, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, how dumb do you think they felt right there in that moment? We spent all day with you and you're Jesus? Oh, I'd love to see that. Verse 32. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? Verse 33, and they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and who were, found the 11 that they were gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So here's what just takes place. These guys walk seven miles down the road with Jesus, had no idea. They sit down, they eat a meal, their eyes are open. You are Jesus. Jesus goes, they run the entire seven miles. Anyone want to run seven miles today? 
they would run the entire seven miles back to where they just came from into the community of believers, into the community they're a part of and say, listen, this is what just happened. Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now we have to take a step back and go, but what if they wouldn't have done that? Let's just tease that out for a second. What would have taken place if these guys go, cool, man, you are Jesus. I don't know why I'm talking like they're stoners, but uh, you are Jesus. This is awesome. All right, man, I'm going to bed. Good night. That bread was good. It wasn't overcooked. It's still doughy in the center. It just hit me well. I'm, I'm, I'm out. Jesus, will you turn the lights out when you go? And by that, I mean blow out the candle because there's no electricity. No, what would have happened if these guys didn't run back to affirm with the other disciples what they already knew? See, this is where we start to get a really perverse idea of community. When we think of community, where do we naturally go to? Well, community is about me and my needs. I'm going to get into a community because it's about me. I'm in a weird spot. I'm brand new, freshman in a town I've never lived in before. I've got to get into community because if I don't, then. But what Jesus is telling us, what it looks like then for us to be a disciple is, no, no, we flip that around and say, if I don't get into community, if I don't encourage people with the story God has given me, then what's going to happen to their life? If I don't share the good graces of what I know about Jesus Christ, then is that community actually going to flourish or not? We see this happening all over the place. We've been teaching through the book of Luke. We'll get back into it in two more weeks. But every time Jesus performs a miracle, what takes place? Even when Jesus says, hey, listen, don't tell anyone. The time's not right. Don't tell anyone what I've done. What do they always do? They run back to their community and tell someone. They run back to their friends. They run back to their family and say, you've got to understand what just took place. Do you see these legs? They didn't work an hour ago. I've never done that before. That's weird. I'll never do that again. But... They, they ran, they talked, they communicated that their story, they shared their story. So what does it mean if we actually believe in Jesus Christ? It means that we now have a story to tell, and the best context how Jesus orchestrated this to take place is within community. First Peter would say it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Why? First Peter 2 verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you you may proclaim the excellencies of those who called you. So we have to start shifting our mind then. Then if we understand, believe that your story matters, we need to finish up here and redefine what community actually looks like. Because I think we have a perverse idea of community. So this idea of community is koinonia in the Greek. It means for us to share participation within community. Shared participation within community. Now, if you guys have grown up, just, just curious for me, raise your hand if you did not grow up in church. Okay. So what this means, what this looks like, the idea that we have is a church fellowship. Anyone ever had a church fellowship? No? You grew up in church without a church fellowship? So, so here's what a church fellowship typically looks like. Uh, three or four people are going to do all the work. Everyone's going to show up. They're going to complain that the food wasn't cooked thoroughly, that they ran out of Kool-Aid, and they're going to leave. Anyone else sound like church fellowship? Right? Church 
fights happen because they ran out of fried chicken. Listen, church, I think we ran out of coffee. I'm sorry. I didn't know there's going to be this many of you here today. I'm glad you're here, but I'm, I'm, I apologize. We ran out of coffee. But this isn't about you. This is about sharing fellowship. This is about us together as a corporate group for us sharing fellowship. So, so what does this look like? What does this mean? There's a quote by a guy named Tim Chester. It says it this way. I am not autonomous. I am a person in community. I cannot be who I am without regard to other people. With our individualistic worldview, we speak the gospel message of reconciliation, unity, and identity as part of people of God. This is perhaps the most significant culture gap the church has to bridge. So we cannot be Christians and individualistic. We cannot have the good news of Jesus Christ and stay by ourselves. That if we believe that God has equipped us, that he has given us a story, that we have been saved by grace through faith. This faith is not of our own. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. If we believe what Ephesians 2 says about us, then the next logical step for us is to get into community to encourage those around us. So when we pray and we finish, you're going to go sign up, hopefully, for a missional community. But here's what you need to know about a missional community. They're not college missional community, young, single missional community, young, adult missional community, old people missional community, um, stairway to heaven missional community, right, where, like, you're almost dead and the stairway's coming down. And uh, no lie, the last church I grew up at, that was their last Sunday school class, adult one, a.k.a. stairway to heaven, a.k.a. you're about to die. That's not how we do community around here. We do community very multi-generational. Sign up for whatever night works best for you. And here's why. Because you as an 18-year-old can speak just as much truth into me as I can to you. That me as a 31-year-old can speak just as much truth into a 6-year-old as they can into me. And this hasn't always been this way. When we first started the church, we had um, different generational missional communities. And one of the single-handed most, um, or most beneficial thing for the church has been to blend these together. Because when we get to practice the idea that my story matters, when I walk into a community on Wednesday night at my house, I expect to breathe life into those that are walking in, and I expect the same in return. I expect for a college freshman to walk in and say, this week is awful, this is the worst week ever, but I know that my faith grows stronger through suffering and persecution, so let's get it. I'm going to go, wow. I got nothing to add to that. This multi-generational, this idea that true community takes place when we all pour in, when we all believe that our story matters, that I have a Bible, you have a Bible, we're studying the Bible together. This is what the Lord is teaching me. What is the Lord teaching you? That this as a community is what takes place. This is where growth happens. Why? because we actually believe that our story matters. Jeremiah 1 has this really interesting exchange uh, where God is saying, Jeremiah, you're going to go prophesy. This is what you're going to do. And he said, no, 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 I, I can't do that because I'm, look at me, I'm young. And God says back to Jeremiah, do not say. Do not say that. If I have saved you, if I've given you a reason to preach the gospel, you will preach the gospel no matter what. And for us, as we get involved in communities, we believe that our story matters. This is what takes place. 1 John 5.1 puts it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone that believes has faith in Jesus, you've now been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
This is community. If you love God, then you love those that have been born of him. This is what we read in Acts, that they, all that believed had everything together in common. Now, now let me end, start to lay in the plane with this. Now, Ephesians 4.12 says this way, that, that God has given the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, the leaders of the church to equip the saints in the works of the ministry, to equip you for the works of the ministry. So um, what we're doing here at the church is we're equipping you Two, believe that your story matters. So some of you are listening to this sermon going, man, that sounds great, but I'm, there's no way I'm there. I cannot walk into a room of strangers and encourage them. I don't even know if I really believe in this Jesus guy. My life is a wreck, Pastor. You don't know where I am. I cannot do what you're asking of me. That's fine. That's incredible. I'm so glad you're here. I'm encouraged that you are even considering getting into a community. If you're willing to, the church is going to equip you to get to this point, but I know we're not all there. I know that we're still a work in process. I know that if we define a disciple as a gospel-centered community living on mission, that we all have something to work out through this process, that we're all in process through this. So, so I get it. I listen. I understand. And here's what I'll commit to you. Um, there's three ways within a Sunday gathering, within an MC, within a DNA, that we're going to try to equip you to believe. Um, here, we're going to give you opportunities to respond, whether it be through worship, and um, we do communion together after every gathering, um, whether it be through tithing, whatever that looks like, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to who Jesus says that you are. Well, why do you think it is that we raise our hands? Why do you think it is that we worship, that we get excited about God? Because if we understand who God is, then we understand who we are, as sons and daughters of the King. Within a missional community, we're going to give you opportunities to love one another. I know that sounds basic, but there are 59 commands within Scripture for us to love one another, serve one another, outdo one another in showing honor. All of this is equipping this idea that can I actually serve someone else? Well, if I believe my story matters, I can. Can I actually love this family? Well, if I believe my story matters, I can. Is it okay that I show up 30 minutes earlier to help clean the house so they can have community there? Absolutely, you can. So we're going to give you opportunities to wrestle through this idea. If you don't do this, who will? If you don't walk in your identity, if you don't walk in your story, then who's going to do that apart from you? And with the DNAs, and this is probably the one that's going to freak most of you guys out the most, which I understand, uh, we're going to give you opportunities to confess sin together. But, but here's, here's what I found out. Let me just kind of get on my soapbox for a minute. And this might get a little graphic, but you have to hear this. When I first got here, and we st I started doing discipleship groups with all these guys, um, here's what would take place. What sins are you struggling with? Man, it's, it's pornography. So then I would pray with them. We'd start going to it. Have you ever told anyone? No, I've, I've never told that anyone before. Then I'd walk over to this guy. Hey, man, let's go grab some Chick-fil-A. Tell me what's going on in your life. Man, like, here's what's happening. It's pornography. Well, have you ever told anyone of this before? No, I never told anyone. Then I'd go over here, and I'd go to um, Moses, and we'd have dinner and say, hey, man, what's going on? Tell me about your life. Man, I'm struggling with pornography. Have you ever told anyone? No. So finally, I was like, okay, you three, boom. You all struggle with the same sin. Let's talk about it. Let's get it on the table. And what happened in that conversation was the most freeing, liberating idea because this entire time, they thought they were dealing with this on their own. The church does such a credible job of don't, tell, don't sweat, don't let anyone know that you actually sin, don't say cuss words unless they're Christian cuss words, like, just keep it to yourself. But when we actually start to confess sin within one another, we realize that we're all broken, messed up people. All of us. So when we start to confess sin, 
we will see that the fruit of that confessing sin is what? We understand who God is and we're encouraging others to be like Christ. Paul, Paul, right? Not too tall Paul. Paul from the Bible. That's his nickname forever. Paul from the Bible, the most incredible apostle that has ever lived, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, said what? I'm the chief of sinners. I am the worst. And when I'm weak, when I confess my sin, then Christ is strong. So what is one of the most applicable ways for us to grow in this idea that our story matters, that through our words, Christ can give life to others? It's not stand up here and talk about how great I am. It's stand up here and talk about sin and how horrible I am. One of my favorite quotes, John Wee says that we impress people with our strengths. Don't we want to impress people? But we actually connect with people through our weaknesses. So if we're looking for true community, true community, it doesn't happen with let me come in and put my best foot forward. It happens with, man, here's my life, here's my junk. The Lord is working in me. The Lord is redeeming me. So let's connect. Let's have a real relationship over our weaknesses, not over our strengths. So what then does this mean for us? As we close this morning, I just want to ask one question. If your life was a movie, would anyone pay to see it? Is God using you? Let me rephrase that. Are you allowing God to use you and shape you and grow you into a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or are you more concerned about what's happening tomorrow, what's happening this next week, what's happening in two weeks? Am I ever going to get married? Let me just stop real quick. Um, Christian and Elena just got engaged this morning. Let's celebrate that. Here's what I can promise you. You don't have to worry about getting married. If you just come to the branch, we will take care of that for you. Just let that one float out the water. If you're a girl in here, I've got you. We will, I mean, not this, yep. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, uh, let's pray. No. <laughs> but seriously, as we close, as we start to understand what it really means for us to live in community, here's my question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that your story matters? Do you believe that you can walk into a room because of what Jesus has done in your life and you can encourage those around you? That is what it means for shared fellowship. That is what it means for koinonia. That is what it means for us to be a gospel-centered community that lives on mission. So as we take communion this morning, let me just give a couple of prefaces. One, as we know through Scripture, and 1 Corinthians outlines this, that communion is for believers. If you're not yet a believer in here, I'm so grateful that you're here but I'd ask you just to sit back and watch as we take communion because this is everything for us. John 14, where we've been, if you flip a couple chapters later, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper where Jesus is saying, take this, do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning, as we're realigning our hearts, we're taking communion in remembrance of all that God has done for us. But here's the question I want us to wrestle with as we're taking communion. Did Jesus Christ die Did he defeat death? Is he sitting now at the right hand of the Father for me to live a life all about myself? Or, as Jesus spilt his blood out for us, is it time for me now to spill my story out to those around us in my community for the edification of the body, for the perseverance of the saints, to keep us going? Because here's the truth, church. I, I need you. 
I need you. Why do you think we started this morning with the presentation of our elders? I am too dumb to do this by myself. If I didn't have those four guys walking alongside me, this church would not be what it is. But when I walked into those elder meetings, I'm encouraging them, they're encouraging me, this is what true community looks like. We need each other. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your words this morning. And thank you that you've given us scripture for us to dream about and meditate on. Father, I'm, I'm reminded of the father that was begging Jesus for a miracle to heal his son. And Jesus, you said to him, do you believe? And the father says, I, I do, I believe. But would you help me with my unbelief? So I'm, I'm praying for that for me this morning. I'm praying that over this church this morning that, that we would believe. But in the areas that we struggle with our unbelief, Father, would you redeem those areas? God, we have a new definition of what true community looks like, Father, where we don't walk in to feed me, take care of me, Father, but we walk into this community saying, what can I do to advance the gospel in this group of people? What can I do to serve? What can I do to love? Because if we all have that mentality, no one's needs are going to go unmet. If we all walk into the room with that idea that because all that you've done for us, Christ, because you've first loved us, now it's time for us to go love, starting with our community, starting with our family. God, we would look so different. People would be begging, would knock down our doors to be a part of this community that we have because it's rooted first and foremost in you, the author and perfecter of our faith. So as we take communion this morning, church, would we wrestle with this idea of does our story really matter? Would we plead with God to be poured out like he was? Would we walk into a new arena of tiredness that only you can sustain us because we're loving and serving those around us so much? God, we, we need each other. We cannot do this alone. You modeled that for us in the Trinity. Father, we, we need you and we need one another. So let communion this morning be a reminder of that. It's in your name we pray, amen. So we do have communion set up on, on both sides. There's no rush. We're gonna continue in worship and when the time is right, when you feel like your heart is clean for, worship, or for communion, by all means, go grab it and come back and continue in worship.